welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. Welcome to another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today, I am super excited to be speaking to Guy Clackson. So Guy is a honorary professor of education at the University of Bristol in the School of Education, a visiting professor of education at King's College London School of Education an Emeritus Professor of the Learning Sciences at the University of Winchester Centre for Real World Learning. So, very warm welcome, Guy. Thank you. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be talking with you, Fabia. Yes, I'm really excited because you are um, what I would call a real expert in education. So, wonderful. Oh, yes. So, um, Guy, I'm... I bought, and to all the listeners, please go and buy um, Guy's latest book, which is called The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back. Um, you can't see it, but for, you know, on the video, I'm actually showing a cover of this book. I've started reading it, and really, I can't recommend it highly enough. So please go and, and buy it and read it. Um, but I, I want to start guy with the first thing um i read when i opened the book um and the, the the first two things i read the first one is the road to educational hell is paved with false dichotomies mm -hmm. that made me really uh, smile <laughs> um so start with that <laughs> Start with that. Well, that's a that's a that's a a, a good quote. Um, I forget the name of the person I I pinched it from, um, but he used to be a high up civil, sort of senior civil servant. Uh, Michael Barber, his name is Sir mm -hmm. Michael Barber, um, and uh, I used it as my epitaph for the for the book uh, because the book is really. Um, my attempt to push back against uh, some people, particularly over the last 10 or 15 years or so, who've been trying to persuade other people in education that there is a really strong distinction and a really strong conflict between progressive teaching and traditional teaching. Mm. And I think this is, and they, they claim that this is but this strong distinction is founded in science, in cognitive science, which is my trade. Mm -hmm. And they claim that cognitive science has shown that a sort of hard kind of traditional teaching, which they sometimes call direct instruction, yeah. like good old fashioned chalk and talk sort of, sort of teaching, is the only form of teaching that works and everything else so they're basically talking about one tiny kind of teaching 
which is the, the most traditional kind that you can imagine. And everything else is lumped together and dismissed as being ineffective and, uh, and actually damaging towards mm. children, particularly children from poorer backgrounds. Yeah. And that it's contrary to what we know from cognitive science about the fundamental nature of learning, fundamental nature of the human mind, if you like. Um, and I thought, and I still think, that this strong polarization is, is itself damaging. Mm. And it's damaging to teachers who, if they've got any sense, and almost all of them have, use a whole variety of methods. Sometimes they'll explain things, Sometimes they'll have kids exploring things. Sometimes they'll have them sitting quietly listening to things. Sometimes they'll have them trying to figure things out on their own in small groups. The 21st century teaching uh, draws on a whole variety of different methods. So my worry is that people in the teaching profession will feel undermined by these very powerful claims that science has proved that these other forms of teaching are illegitimate and ineffective and damaging. And I think this is rubbish. Mm. And the book explains all the good reasons why I think that. Yeah, and I love also um, that it's time for the educational slugfest to stop. That was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it is, I mean, it is like a kind of war. I mean, the fashionable phrase would be like a culture war. Yeah. And the, what I'm pushing back against is this group of people who are in their writing. What, I should make it clear that what I'm, what I'm dismayed by and what I'm trying to debunk is the published writing of these people. In their classrooms, if they're teachers, they may be doing something much more nuanced, yeah. but it's their writing that is having an effect on the rest of the profession. So that's what I'm that's what I'm having a, having a go at. Mm. Um, and it's it's often very belligerent mm. and very um, hostile to anything that isn't exactly the kind of transmitting received unquestionable knowledge from the teacher to the children yeah so in the book you call that d-i-k-r yeah um, dicker for short <laughs> I love it. So these are these are the dicker people they are they believe that the, the the only the only right way of doing education is direct instruction in other words explaining everything up front and then having kids you know then making sure that they've understood it and they remembered it and mm -hmm. then testing them and then retesting them yeah. that's the that's the model that is being promoted and that's the model that i think is i mean i think let, let me let me be clear about this i'm not against some traditional methods in the right place with the right people at the right time for the right purpose mm. i'm not a, a progressive who's who's counter-attacking all traditional or conventional teaching. I'm only attacking this particular virulent strain. It's like another, you know, the particular, the worrying strain of COVID or something, you know, mm. that is that, that says 
traditional teaching and only traditional teaching is what should be going on in our schools. Yeah. And that, that doesn't prepare young people for, to flourish at universities no. or further on in their lives. And that's what I am concerned about because I firmly believe that education should fundamentally be a preparation for life not just the preparation for consuming yet more education. Yes, oh, I couldn't, that's music to my ear. So flourishing education, because for me, it's about lifelong learning. It's about, mm -hmm. you know, we, we learn from the minute we're born to until we die, right? From cradle to grave. Well, um, we, we, we're, that, that's what we're built to do, mm -hmm. unless we find ourselves in a very strange kind of education which can actually undermine or narrow people's ability as learners, unfortunately. There are people who have come, come out of conventional schools and some of them have, have good grades, you know, they'll get to Bristol University or mm -hmm. Oxford or Warwick mm -hmm. or the Sorbonne or Stanford or yeah. something like that. Yeah. But when they get there, they often flounder mm -hmm. because they didn't build up the requisite mental habits, I call them, habits of mind, which they now realize they're going to need because yeah. when you're at university, you're much more on your own. So mm. you have to be self-reliant, self-organizing, self-disciplined, more resilient, more creative, more imaginative in your approach to learning. And if by accident, these precious qualities have been undermined by your time at school, then that's you're sort of unprepared, not just unprepared, mm. but disprepared yeah. for doing well at university and or and beyond. Yeah, yes, which is what I see. This is the reason I wrote my first book, The Flourishing Students, because I had a nine-year gap. And when I came back to the French department at the university, to say that I was horrified but what I came back to was an understatement. I just did not understand what was going on for young people and you know, the amount of what I call suffering I could see, you know, their subjective yes. well-being being so affected. Um, Absolutely. Well, you know, we know about the, the, the tragic deaths and suicides mm. uh, over the last year or so at the University of Bristol. Um, when I was, some, some, some time ago when I was writing about this, I had long and very interesting conversations with the directors of the counselling services at both Oxford and Cambridge University. And they, they told me the same story, that, that they're getting many more students now refer, being referred or self-referring mm. to the counselling service because they lack resilience. Mm. They lack the sort of stamina. They, if they can't do something quickly and easily, they sort of go to pieces. They feel mm. that they're stupid if they get behind with their work they don't know how to rescue themselves mm. partly because they've been some of them have been surrounded throughout their childhood by parents and teachers who've been busy rescuing them from any difficulty yeah so they've never built up their stamina they've never built up their fortitude as yeah. learners so yeah. they may have come out with two a stars and an a in their a levels but they may find, but you know, during their first or second year at university, that they're miserable and you know, suffering from imposter syndrome. You know, they're feeling that they're being 
revealed to be less intelligent or less worthy than they felt they were. Mm. So, so, you know, the question is, is that anything to do with school? Is it, you know, the school should school be not only concerned about helping them get the grades, but be very much concerned with helping them build these qualities of character, which mean once they've, the grades have helped them get through the door to high quality apprenticeship or university or whatever, that they've got the habits of mind, they've got the dispositions, which will enable them to thrive when they're there. Mm. And so do you think that, because this is one of the questions that I've been asking myself, and, and more and more I'm, I'm convinced that it is, but I would love to have your take on it, that actually the, I've always felt that the, the young people I see at university are the products or the result of a whole schooling system, right? Mm -hmm. And that the more I look at it, it just really feels like we are funneling for, a, you know, not no better world, um, our children on this conveyor belt of, you know, it starts through primary school with like the SATs and then, you know, the TATs when they start secondary school yeah. and then the GCSEs and then DA levels. And we say to these young people, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what works for you or doesn't work for you. Here's the, 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 the conveyor belt. You have to go through those square holes and mm -hmm. we will standardize you and you will come out. Even if you're a triangle or a heart-shaped individual, mm -hmm. you will go through that square and we don't care how you come out, you will come out. Well, well, I, I agree with you up to a point, Fabienne, but I, I would moderate that slightly. There, there are some people who are perfectly school-shaped. Yes. So they fit very well. You know, they love ancient history or trigonometry. Mm -hmm. Mm. or understanding the ins and outs of the periodic table uh and why not yes. you know the world my, needs my, my eldest is so my eldest is i i often joke and say is the perfect square for that perfect hole yeah 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 it's in beautifully yes but not 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 all kids are mm. and i think there are a lot of kids who are perfectly intelligent competent human beings who, as you say, don't fit that mold. And over the last few years, particularly in England, that mold has got narrower and narrower. The, the, the government and the, um, the Ofsted regime have become more and more obsessed with a very small version of the curriculum, the high state subject, English, math, science, foreign language, the most intellectual of the aspects mm -hmm. of what goes on in school and some small proportion flourish and do very well and get their place to read history at bristol mm -hmm. or whatever it is they want to do but an awful lot of them you're absolutely right feel like square pegs in round holes that they're not seen or heard that what interests or puzzles them is of no value or no interest to what goes on in school and worse than that, when you look at the kinds of these habits of mind that I'm really interested in, they go by lots of different names. Lots of people around the world are trying to get a handle on this. Habits of mind, character strengths, 21st century skills, non-cognitive skills. Uh, they're, they're called all, all different kinds of things, but it's all the same thing. 
it's the sort it is like I like the phrase the habits of mind the dispositions particularly towards learning mm. towards difficulty towards challenge towards ambiguity towards complexity it's like what could be more precious than to come out of your education feeling equipped feeling competent and confident and keen to engage with things that are worthwhile but challenging yeah, yeah for me yeah. that that's yeah. like one of the trunk of character i mean people's characters grow in all kinds of different directions and so they should but i feel some people will disagree with me but i feel there is a like a trunk of the tree mm. of characteristics that almost all young people are likely to benefit from as they go through life yeah. and they are things like resilience empathy critical thinking imagination the ability to concentrate and curiosity and collaboration mm. for me qualities like that are the trump and we know from the science that all of these are capable of being trained they're capable of being coached or the better word is cultivated if you put kids in the right culture if you put mm. them in the right um, environment then these habits of mind will naturally grow mm. but if you put them in a classroom where it's all about getting right answers and, and answering quickly and not be never making mistakes if that's the ethos in a classroom then you're going to struggle it's like the undercurrent in that classroom is pulling you in the opposite direction mm. towards anxiety and timidity and dependency often and being docile and being passive you know and if we were sending kids out of school with good exam results but these weak learning characteristics and if we had somehow or other been complicit in encouraging the development of those characteristics then i'm afraid i would have to call that miseducation yes 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 absolutely and so you were you were saying that this is in the more recent years that sort of it's been a narrower focus and you know more specific can you tell us a bit more i mean you you talk about that in the book but can you could you tell the listeners where that stems from why are we suddenly focusing on on this on 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 just you know teaching to because to me it feels like i'll give you an example i was involved in looking at a gcse french gcses recently mm. they asked me if i would give them an, an indication of where it stands in terms of the common european framework for for uh, you know level and I looked at the paper and there's parts of that paper that I would have failed as a French native speaker because I would never have said it this way or the question for me was flawed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I said that to the person and I said, well, before I give you a level, how about we talk about the exam itself? Because mm -hmm. it seems completely ludicrous that you, you ask a young person to complete an exam that not no native speaker would actually yeah. use right yes um, yes so i mean I, I, you know I, I i think what kids do in school to what what they do in school should be useful there should be a sense of how is this equipping them 
mm. to lead successful lives, yeah. to have good relationships, to, yeah. I think, particularly to have a clear sense of the worthwhile goals and challenges in their life, what they're passionate about, what turns them on, and the confidence to pursue those things, even when, especially when, they become difficult. Mm. For me, that's that's very, that's at the heart of a good life. I'm not so keen. Lots of people talk about well-being and happiness these days. For me, those are not fundamental values. My fundamental value is something more like fulfillment. Mm. It's like you know, when I when I when I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to look back and think I was happy all the time. I want to look back and think, did I make a difference? Did I live according to my values? Did I have the courage of my convictions? Did I leave my mark in some way or other? Mm. So I think it's not too grandiose to say so, but that's what we're trying to tee kids up for in school, to have that, to have a kind of moral sense, mm. but also to have that the kind of what I call epistemic character to be able to pursue these things, not be frightened of them because they might be different from what other people want or expect, or because they might look silly because they've bitten off more than they could chew. Mm. There are all kinds of ways in with little bits of mental malware that we can install in kids' minds, which make them weaker in their approach to learning rather than stronger. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, if that happens, it's a tragedy. And I think the narrowing of the curriculum is particularly in England. I don't know what it's like in France. I suspect it's it's about as bad. Uh, the, the reflection of a powerful group of people who did well from a very intellectualized form of education. And I think they're not all bad people, but I think they're misguided if they think that because they did well, you know, they might have come from a poor background but they liked school, they did well at school, they got their place to the Sorbonne or the Ecole Polytechnique or wherever. Da, 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 da. Therefore, that's good for everybody. You know, in the ideal world for some of these people, it's like everybody, all poor, bright kids should be able to go to Oxford, right? Like they see that as the kind of the driving force. So everybody gets herded down this same narrow funnel and of course, because you know, no, Oxford is never going to be big enough to accommodate the entire cohort of eighteen-year-olds in England, um, let alone let alone the rest of the world. Yeah. And it wouldn't be Oxford if it could. Yeah. You know, it is yeah. in a sense elitist, mm. inevitably. Yeah. Uh, and the people who should go there should be people who are passionate about being intellectual. Yeah. But that's not everybody's route in life. You know, perfectly, it's perfectly valid trajectory in life to be passionate about your music or passionate about caring for other people or passionate about carpentry or whatever, whatever it may be. So a school system that leaves two thirds of young people feeling that they weren't good at the only game in town, I think, needs a bit of a rethink. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean we have to chuck out the curriculum. But it means we have to pay more attention to these un the, these underlying habits of mind, which are being either formed or misformed by the way we do school, 
Mm. So my interest is mainly in the teaching style, the methodology that teachers use. Mm. And of course, we then have to pay attention to the content of the curriculum. Yeah. But I think the methodology, the climate that teachers create in their classrooms have a very powerful impact on this developmental trajectory. Mm. So I, I completely agree with you. And I also believe that uh, for me, it's about the current the mainstream education we shouldn't get rid of. You know, there are a lot of people who are saying just scrap it and start again. I completely disagree. Um, and I think it's really important that we look at what's not working. So you were sort of talking about these high stake exams and, you know, young people arriving at university and also the, you know, I need to go to Oxford or Cambridge. There's also, mm. of course, um, if you look at, if you listen to the rhetoric and the language in the media, the press, the parents, it's like one in two now go to university, one in four will get a first. So it's, mm. it's you, that's what you have to do. And I see it in you know, the, the topic I said, I, I teach French. There's people who are studying. So I'll give you the example of one of my tutti who then left, wasn't engaging in the first year. And I called her and I said, you know, what is going on? Why are you not attending the classes and not engaging? Mm. And I could really see that she, she wasn't enjoying the course. And I said, well, why, why are you here? And she said, oh, you know, my parents and the teachers said that I had to do French at university. Um, and I said, well, what about you? What do you want to do? And she said, oh, I wanted to do photography. Mm. And, and I was looking at her thinking, well, why are you not doing photography then? And why are you here <laughs> yeah, doing French? Absolutely. There was a, there was a little a piece in the, the paper a little while ago about a, a, a young woman, a story very like this, who got a place at, at, I think it was Oxford, got a place at Oxford and turned it down to train as a hairdresser. And there was a, like a sort of outrage. It's like, how, what kind of madness is this? You know, and I, maybe I'm a bit weird. Maybe you're a bit weird too. But I think if, you're, if that's your passion, and you want to develop that craft to the highest, most creative level that you can, good on you. Yes. I don't want to look down my nose. I don't want to see people who are mechanics or care workers as somehow or other second class. Mm. You know, they, if, they, if they'd been bright enough, they would have gone to Bristol, but they weren't bright enough. So they did an apprenticeship at British Aerospace. Right. That's that's a very common attitude, yeah. deeply embedded in the education system. And I think it stinks. Yes, it stinks. And it and, you know, it doesn't matter how much you package it. Students are not are not silly. So I'll give you another example. My eldest is currently in secondary school and in year eight. So he, the school where he goes to, they're asking him to choose his options early. Um, as I said, is the is the perfect square for the for the whole. So mm -hmm, he's, mm -hmm. they've already put him on the on a pathway that is a more academic pathway. That's how they've labelled it. Yeah. Um, and and he, he's been told these are your options. So he was looking at the options. There's one option he really really wants to do. It's a Cambridge. 
uh, eye media, creative eye media, because what he loves doing is animating all of those mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Because it's a Cambridge and not a GCSE, it is not part of his options. He cannot have access to it. And I, um, and you know, he's been told, but these are reserved for the less academic pupils. Oh, really? What? So there was so if, if the, he, there is a course on photography, but he there wasn't allowed. There is an to... iMedia one, but right. he can't access it because he's because he's too bright. Yeah, well, they haven't quite said that, but that's, that's literally <laughs> reading between the lines. You should be doing yeah. the GCSEs. So yes, you should I, be aiming aiming higher. I, yes. Yeah. Well, that's, what, that's the one, the only one guy he really, really was had his heart set on and he really wanted to do. Yeah. Well, but the nice thing is, so there's so much opportunity online he can teach himself photography he can mm. be as as immersed in that uh, as possible and it's, it's just a shame that school couldn't accommodate him i know it's like why why can't we do that though i mean that's yeah. that's one of the things that i want to ask it's like and also then you're sending messages that to me in terms of language are not okay because it's mm -hmm. like you know that that difference you were talking about already it's like well you're academic so you're going to do this this pathway and yeah. and this one well no it's for is if you're not going to do as well academically yeah. It, yeah it's also creating divide amongst the young people in some way yeah yeah, yeah yeah yes absolutely absolutely and this runs sort of deeply in I suppose European culture doesn't it? It's a, it, it's almost as if you know it's like we're back to Descartes and the Enlightenment and the separation of mind from body. Yeah. And mind is smart. Mind is higher. Mind is more intelligent. Mind is more spiritual, and the body is corrupt and unreliable and lustful, yeah. and all those kinds of things. And you can see that still being reflected in the school curriculum. The more body there is in a subject, the lower its status. Mm. Maths is right at the top because you can do maths sitting still in a chair with a pencil, right? There's not much, <laughs> there's almost no body in maths required. And then you're sort of, you know, way down the scale, you have dance and drama and PE where there's, where, where there's lots of body and they're only valued if you win trophies. Yes, yes, of course, right. <laughs> because right. it's, it's Darwinian competitiveness <laughs> that, you know, survival of the fittest, of yeah. course. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you know, so on, on a grand scale, we need to democratise these things. And I'm perfectly happy, you know, if, if kids, school should be a place where you discover, you have the opportunity to explore, to taste things broadly. And, and explore what might be your thing, your path, what have you. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy if some kids are, you know, if kids are being introduced to Latin or chess or mm. nuclear physics or whatever, but I want them also to be introduced to baking and horse yeah. riding and, yeah. what, and, and whatever yeah. else there, there might be. Yes, 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 absolutely. So, you know, you earlier on, you said that the, the 
because of people are using cognitive science as the basis of their arguments. Yes. Do you want to expl expand that a little bit further for, for yeah. us? Yes, yes, sure. Because I think this is the, the thing that spurred me to write the book is, you know, it's a very strong claim that they're making. And the, you know, the, the, the claim is science has proved beyond any doubt that the mind, the, the fundamental structure of the mind is such a, such a, such a way. And that therefore it follows logically and inevitably that only one style of teaching is compatible with this fundamental structure of the mind, what they refer to as the architecture of the mind. Now, psychology is built on metaphors. Actually, science is built on metaphors. Mathematics is built on mm. metaphors. When you learn to add, your teacher might tell you, well, it's like you've got a pile of two things and you add three things to that pile and how many things have you got in the pile, right? You're, you're grounding your understanding back in experience. Or they might say, you walk two steps to the right and then you walk another three steps to the right. How many steps have you walked, right? And you, so you, you begin to get the idea of what, what addition is. And that underlying metaphor will stay with you. So, for example, if you're taught, if you have at the back of your mind this idea that adding and subtracting is about putting things on a pile and taking them off the pile, then you're going to have a lot of trouble with three minus seven. Because how can you have something that's less than nothing? Yeah. Out there, what is a pile that's less than no pile? Yeah. Right? It doesn't make sense. No. So, they, so your metaphor breaks down at that point. But if, you, but if you've got the idea that you're walking two, stop, two steps to the right and then another three steps to the right, then what happens if you, if you take away seven? Well, you walk five steps back to where you were before and then two steps in the opposite direction. Yeah. Makes perfectly good sense. Yeah. Right? So sci and science develops on the basis of these metaphors, that the atom is like a, a little mini solar system or electricity is like little elect electrons being shoved down a tube or what have you, right? So psychology is built on metaphors. So let's, let's just take the metaphor of architecture. They like this phrase, the Dicker people love this phrase, the architecture <laughs> like of the, the mind. Dicker people, I like that word. I'm fundamental architecture of the mind. What, is, what, what, what do you think of when you think of architecture? I'll Buildings. tell you. Yeah, buildings. You think of the Acropolis, or the, the, the Parthenon, or something like big, solid, yeah, it doesn't move, it doesn't grow, it doesn't get any bigger, it doesn't get any smaller, unless you put an annex on it, right? And it's solid, it stays there, right? So already, we've constricted our view of the mind to something that is structural, that is unchanging, that is universal, you know, it doesn't matter what the weather is, on the Acropolis Hill, the Parthenon still stays there, right? But more, more recently, people have used much more biological kinds of images, or much more neurological kinds of images to think about the mind, which are, which are quite different. I mean, if you take the top off someone's head, you don't see little boxes or little buildings inside their head, do you, right? There aren't any little buildings. 
There's no little box called working memory or another little box called long-term memory. There, are, there is in a computer, right? Mm -hmm. Which is where this metaphor comes from, right? So you take the back of a computer and you can see where the RAM is and where the central processing unit is and where the hard drive is. And they're physically different and things, stuff, information, physically is moved backwards and forwards between them. Mm. Now that metaphor, particularly the idea that working memory or the, the combination of RAM, the RAM and the, and the central processing unit is, has a very limited capacity to in, the, in this model, which was around when I was doing my undergraduate studies. If it were first saw the light of day in 1967, when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, Doing, doing psychology. And the, the, this model was published that there was this little limited capacity, short-term memory or working memory, and everything that got into long-term memory had to squeeze through this narrow tube, this narrow vestibule in order to get into long-term memory. Well, I don't know about you, but my mind doesn't function like that most of the time. These, this, this, this model was derived from, uh, from, from experiments, lots and lots of experiments of a very peculiar type. People were given long strings of random numbers to remember. Now, when does that happen in your real life? Possibly when someone reads out a telephone number to you, but, but while, you're, while you're programming it into your contact list in your yeah. phone, you might have to remember it. Or, if you forgot your shopping list, you might have to try and remember a list of things that don't fit together very well and yeah. not like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. But that's not, but my mind isn't built like that. My, you know, it's, it's a kind of perversion of mm -hmm. my mind to be asked to do something like that. My mind has to contort itself into a rather strange shape in order to remember long random lists of digits. Yet, this fundamental view of the human mind derived from those kinds of experiments. Well, maybe occasionally there are some things in some classrooms that where kids have to kind of remember lots of lots of things that don't immediately make sense, but not often. No. No. And and sometimes, if that's what they're experiencing, you might say the teacher has misjudged the lesson or they've paced it wrong mm. or they didn't, they, they just made an, an assumption about the background knowledge of the children, which was inaccurate. Yeah. Now there's no shame in that. We're all, all the time, we're always yeah. judging, you know, what to say and how to put it in the light of unconscious assumptions about what the other person knows. And sometimes we get it wrong. So sometimes teachers will get it wrong. Okay, so we, we've all known that about teaching, that pacing and getting the level right or finding the right metaphor. So a metaphor gives you something to hang on to, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like if new information is coming in, the first thing you try and do is find something that you can assimilate it to. It may not be a good fit, but you start by finding some kind of a fit and then you can work with it then you can modify it. Yeah. a bit you can elaborate it or you can differentiate it but that's a completely different model of what going what's going on in people's heads from this idea that the facts are being shoved in to one end of this narrow tube 
and then somehow or other they have to work their way into long-term memory. So it's not a very helpful model. No. <laughs> and and the, the so so why are we even promoting it using it saying that it's it's the it's the model what well some some, some cognitive scientists are 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 claiming that and i'm sure they're people of good faith so they genuinely believe that but I think they're still working with, with an approach to psychology, which is 60 years old. You know, as if nothing significant had happened in our fundamental approach to understanding psychology, to understanding the, what the mind is and the way it works. And I keep up with the literature as well as I'm able. And it's, things have completely changed. Things have completely changed. So Andy Clark, for example, who's one of the most powerful writers in this area, he's now has a chair in philosophy, I think, at the University of Sussex. Wonderful, wonderful writer. Um, he talks about the mind as, as working on a principle of what he calls soft assembly. In other words, whatever you're doing, the mind is not sort of broken up into these big boxes. It's a big network of sub-networks, if you like, and whatever you're doing, the mind sort of creates its own working structure for that purpose, for that moment, mm. and then it relaxes again. Yeah. A bit like a sort of an octopus. You imagine it sort of relaxes back yeah. into a potential state, and then the mind might sort of bunch itself up in order to cope with, you know, now we're trying to work out a physics problem, or now we're doing a French translation. So this principle of soft assembly, which, in which the mind is much more fluid, much more flexible, doesn't have any room for the Parthenon in it. It's a completely different metaphor. Mm. So what, and you know, I can't, we don't have time to go into all the details of this, but this model, this old fashioned computer-based model is somehow or other then used to justify this most traditional way of teaching. People argue that in order to help out poor little working memory, which has got all this stuff stuffed into it, you have to put a whole lot more stuff into long-term memory and that will help. So mm -hmm. the, more, the more facts we've crammed in, yeah. the more those facts you've already got in memory will somehow be able to tug from their, their side to yeah. get the stuff going through working memory. Now that's, a, that's so crude an image of my understanding of what understanding is that it's it's radically misleading yes radically un unhelpful so part of you know one of the chapters in my book is an attempt to just to really sort of dig in critically yeah. into this yeah. metaphor yeah. where yeah. it came from and yeah. to offer some alternatives which yeah. are much more fluid and much more productive and which shift our attention from the idea of knowledge, mm. which the, like the knowledge rich curriculum. Some people treat knowledge as if it was just a collection of facts, but I would much rather talk about understanding or mm. the development of competence or expertise. Yeah. If the, you know, they're, that's what I would want my children to have if I had any, yeah. I would want them to be competent. I would want them to understand things. Yeah. 
I don't want them to win who wants to be a millionaire. Well, I wouldn't mind actually, you know, but I don't think that should be the, the, the model outcome of all schools to have people who did well on University Challenge. Yeah. And do you think that therefore this is also the basis of teacher training and and with that concept also one thing I've challenged with one with my other sons my youngest sons for is this behaviorist of approach to um to children's um you know in class so the the skinner sort of uh punishments and, and reward attitudes mm -hmm. that we've seen with rats for example or with with dogs yeah. and and it's obviously clearly not working with my son. Um, mm -hmm. And I said that to the teacher. I said, but my son is not a rat. He's, he's <laughs> a individual. So you're using Skinner's work of, mm -hmm. you know, taking carrots and putting his name on the list, trying to get him to concentrate and listen to you. Is it working? And he was going, no. And I went, well, then I suggest we look at how we get him to concentrate and listen to you <laughs> the way that works, because those sticks and carrots are not working, you know. And I was saying to him, so what is he doing instead of listening to you? Because that, the, what he's doing that he, instead of listening to you is obviously more appealing than listening <laughs> to you. So let's make what he's doing less interesting and <laughs> you're doing more interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, he must have, the teacher must have loved you. He was, I think his face was a little bit like he was on mine. And I think he was probably thinking, who is this woman? Um, yeah. But, but, that, but I, you know, I, I wonder whether that also fits in that with all the models, right, of, of behaviour and you know it may be yeah 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 I, I i think it may be i think part of the part of the problem that we're exploring fabienne is that there are some people in powerful positions who like everything to be very simple mm. they like it to be black and white they like it to be you know simple simple cause and effect yeah you know, so if it's still like the stick and carrot, the, the behaviorist thing is a very simple model of human nature, which, you know, it, it does it does apply. But but you have to look at what the what the effects of that are, you know, e extrinsic motivation is a, creates a very different kind of learning from intrinsic motivation yeah. from 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 learning through interest. And there, there are lots of studies you may know in psychology showing, I mean, for example, take some kids who are enjoying playing with some puzzles. And you walk up to them and say, oh, you're obviously having a good time. Hey, how would it be if I was to give you a pound each for every quarter of an hour that you carry on playing with these puzzles? And they go, wow, that's a pretty neat idea. Great. Where's the money? So you give them the money and they carry on playing for a while. Yeah. And then after a while, you say, sorry, money's run out. No money left. That's it. What happens? They don't play with the puzzles anymore. No, they'll go, I don't want to do that if you're not paying me for it. Exactly. So their intrinsic motivation 
has been trumped mm. or squished by the extrinsic motivation. So it's much better if we can try and, as you say, build on youngsters, just like coax them or coach them, develop them. I mean, parenting and school teaching, we are in the business of shaping young people. There's no question about that. You know, we have values. We want them to be kind rather than cruel. We want them to be honest rather than crooked, don't we? You know, I mean, we all have our set of values. We want them to be resilient rather than feeble. Yeah. And, and you know, snowflakey. Yeah. You know, so, so we, we, you know, we are in the business of steering children. But the psychology that I know says the much more effective way of cultivating these desirable traits, these character strengths, so-called, is by putting kids in an environment which invites them and encourages them. Put kids in a classroom where everybody is obviously enjoying, struggling, grappling with difficult things because they want the pleasure of having figured it out for themselves. You know, there is a kind of pride, isn't there, mm -hmm. in having done it for yourself. Yeah. Sometimes even people say, yeah, my two-year-old says that, you know, or, or a four-year-old or, or something or other, struggling to do something. And you go along very, you know, we want to be helpful. And you say, oh, sweetheart, let me show you how to do that. And, and the child, you expect the child to be grateful, but she isn't at all. No. She says, no, mommy, me do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So yeah. children have that pride, that sense of, of satisfaction, of wanting to do it for themselves, of wanting to be autonomous, wanting to do it. And yet somehow or other, you know, this simple bit of psychology gets forgotten in school sometimes. And what we do squashes their resilience. But there are perfectly obvious ways of teaching that builds that capacity, which they had when they were babies, which honors it and strengthens it so that you end up with a room full of kids who, you know, you go in in the morning as a friend of mine who's a primary school teacher. And she says to her class, you want to do something really tricky today? And they go, yeah, miss, bring it on. Oh, I love it. Right? And you can have that. There are simple things that you can do. Like she teaches her five-year-olds to distinguish between making what she calls smart mistakes and sloppy mistakes. Right? You get it, don't you? Yeah. Smart mistake is when you tried something to, you know, the best of your knowledge, you, you gave something a go and it didn't work and you learned something from that. Sloppy mistake is when you didn't bother. Yeah. Right. Now, you would you wouldn't believe how empowering that is for five year olds mm. to realize that there's such a thing as a smart mistake. But in other words, you can make a mistake and be intelligent at the same time. Mm. When you make a mistake, it doesn't mean you're stupid. No or it doesn't mean you're a bad person for not having listening. No. So Becky has on the wall of her classroom, a big poster called Mistake of the Week, where the children kind of queue up. They, they kind of fight to have their smart mistake acknowledged as being the smartest mistake of all that, oh, that, that week. Oh, right? that is so cool. Now, that's just, that, that's a simple little thing. Any teacher could do that. Yeah. But by doing a dozen little things like that, you place an incubator in which children are keen to stretch themselves. They're not afraid to make mistakes or to be half-baked or to try something that they're not very good at. Yeah. 
you know, because they're frightened that someone is going to laugh at them. Nobody ever does laugh at them in this classroom, but it's the teacher's job to create that culture. And yeah. any teacher could do it. You don't have to be a special kind of human being. No. So a lot of my work has been designing the, this kind of culture, like what are these small, smart little things that any teacher could do or any parent could do, which subtly, implicitly build youngsters' strength, build their stamina, build their intellectual resilience, and so on. Right? It's not rocket science, is it? Well, no, and 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 that, this is the thing, though. It it could be so simple because all you you would have to do is use the the research that you you experts like yourself have mm -hmm. been, you know, using and you know, sort of researching and and writing in amazing books, and yet we're not we we you know a, a lot of the thing that i'm i'm seeing in in the press and in the media is almost like going back to uh victorian times where we're yeah. saying i was reading this article to my to my 13 and a half year old saying accordingly to this article you uh, you have not had enough order and discipline during lockdown so i'm going to bring more discipline and order <laughs> and he was horrified he was like but not all children will have had the same experience. So like you're saying, yeah, it's absolutely. so black and white, isn't it? It's like they're yeah. all children need this or all children need that. But yeah. that's, that's not the case. No, it certainly isn't the case. And, you know, lots of kids, I mean, the, lots of the schools that I've worked with, their kids did pretty well during the lockdown because they'd been learning in their classrooms how to be independent, hmm. how to manage time, how to rescue themselves when they were finding something difficult, when to push on, when to take a little bit, when to take a, a break, when they were beginning to get upset. So they just, you know, had to go, you know, watch some cartoons for 15 minutes before they went back to doing it. They learned smart ways of self-managing and self-organizing. Hmm. So they said, I mean, I had some wonderful quotes from these kids from a school in Sydney in Australia that I've been working with saying, you know, when we went into lockdown, into, into home learning, I was a bit anxious about it, but I was really looking forward to it as well because it was going to be an interesting challenge. Now, not every six-year-old would say that, no. right? No. So the more we can do, so my challenge to teachers when, they, when, the, when the schools were opening up again is so what can you do now in your school so that when the next lockdown comes, all of your kids will be ready to cope with it, right? They'll have the, the ability to be self-organized, to set up little study groups with their friends, to get a, a WhatsApp group together for them to, you know, to share their chemistry homework so they can help each other figure things out and so on and so on and so on, right? They have the courage and they have the kind of creativity to manage that situation well. And some kids have been helped to get that from their schools and their teachers, but a lot of a lot of kids haven't because mm -hmm. they were being overtaught, yeah. overmanaged, overdisciplined, overrescued. Right? So they didn't build up. It was like they were being wheeled around. They were being sort of treated like 
paraplegics or something. The teachers are kind of wheeling them around all the time, doing everything for them. And parents are, can be guilty of this too. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. you want to, so, you know, it's a little bit of tough love. It's not, it's, it's like looking at the long picture. Yeah. You know, when your son gets his place to read medicine at University College London or whatever it is that he, he, he or she may not want to do, they'll look back and thank you if they have those skills, if they have that, that temperament that they've been helped to get. Yeah. But if they've been brought up in a snowflakey sort of way by their teachers and their, and their parents, who haven't seen that their job is to gradually relax the structure around them, but only gradually at a speed at which the youngsters can learn how to do it for themselves, how to manage things for themselves. So my group, the last book I wrote before um, The Future of Teaching was this book called The Learning Power Approach. And the subtitle is Teaching Learners to Teach Themselves. Wow. Which any you know, and any, so this is the, this is the Bible. This is, this, this says to any teacher, here are dozens of small little things that you could do, and the results will go up, not down. This is not a distraction from the grades and the key stage two SATs and the GCSEs, because if you fit the learning turbocharger to kids' minds, they'll go further faster. They'll be able to do the stuff. They'll be more confident, yeah. they'll be able to figure things out for themselves and so on so this is you know 20, it's exciting this is 21st century pedagogy yeah yeah, yeah being, absolutely <laughs> it's being developed all all around the world there are research groups and clusters of schools in australia and new zealand and singapore and vietnam and canada and america and brazil all of whom are contributing to creating this new model of how we create the classroom as an incubator of learning character and get good results at the same so, time. So, you know, Guy, you mentioned all those countries, none of them are England. So how do we bring them? <laughs> well, unfortunately, we were, you remember, I don't know if you remember, there's a famous expression that somebody said of the, of the English soldiers in the First World War who were dying by their tens and hundreds of thousands in the mud in the northern France. And they were described as lions being led by donkeys. And I'm afraid that a lot of teachers in schools are lions being led by donkeys these days. So how do we remove the donkeys? <laughs> well, well, the great thing about the learning power approach and other versions of it around the world is that the results go up. If you do what I'm suggesting and you do it gradually and you do it, do it in a kind of nuanced sort of way, so you don't just kind of jump in on Monday morning and say, we're all going to be different now. So that freaks everybody out, yeah. right? But you have a long-term plan, mm. you have real clarity about what the strengths are that you're trying to help your children develop yeah. and what the little steps might be to gradually stretch them so that these strengths get strengthened then it's not it's not too much of a problem and they're quite subtle they're very practical very concrete but they're quite subtle 
So nobody's going to tell you not to. If Ofsted come in and start inspecting you, they like our classrooms because the kids are happy, they're focused, they're collaborating, they're articulate, they're enjoying challenges, they're powerful little learners. So who, who, who would not like that? And yeah. they're reading and they're writing and their test scores are going up. Okay. Right? Well, so, so I think so. this is going to happen from the ground up. Mm. It's going to happen despite the donkeys. <laughs> and after after a certain level what happens people someone wrote a good book the other day which they said innovation always happens from the grassroots it always happens from the margins and eventually after it sort of takes off so much then the policy makers go oh that's a good idea we better have a policy about it right yeah, that, so yeah like, you're right so they're always they're they're kind of lagging rather rather than leading. Yeah. So that's my that's my philosophy. If we can get enough teachers teaching in this kind of way, but this brings us back to the theme of the of the recent book, because the trouble is with this dicker stuff, these strong claims that there's only one way of teaching, what they're doing is stifling that innovation mm. in pedagogy. Yeah. And I think that's a crime against humanity. Mm. Yeah, right? and, and suggesting that people like yourself and other people who are who have been researching, you know, you are researchers, you are professionals, you know, professors, uh, you know what you're talking about, and you can prove that the work that you've been doing is of really you know, good standard academically, and that it provides results. So it, there's a Part of me that just feels like saying, "How dare you?" <laughs> you know, well, dare well, you. my a man called Michael Gove, who used to be Secretary of State for Education, described everybody, everybody like me, as the blob. The blob. The blob, yes. Who were the who were the enemy of progress? Now, what did he call us? The enemies of promise. He called us the enemies of promise. So he doesn't have a clue, really. I mean, you know, I mean, if if we're dealing with donkeys of that degree of dogmatism, if you can have a dogmatic donkey, yeah, right, completely, <laughs> in, completely dismissing people who've spent like me, who've spent their lives trying to figure out how to help children grow and develop more effectively and lead happier and more fulfilled lives, then you know then we, we have a problem and England has a big problem. I think France has a bit of a problem also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the same, but you know, the, the thing is uh, none of the French politicians are educating uh, educated at university. They all go to a, to a, a grand école to be educated. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so that gives you an example. And, and so therefore the model is you have to go to a grand, grand école because that's the best model. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to what you were saying. I think part of, of, of the issue is that people reproduce the model that they've, they've followed because that's all they know. And mm -hmm. they become very fearful of new things. It's like, well, I've gone through this system. It's worked for me just about, or, you know, it's yeah. worked well. Yeah. And like yeah. you were saying, so therefore we'll just reproduce for everybody because it must be the model for everybody. Yeah. Um, and that's a very, you know, it's a very unintelligent 
point of view to assume that what worked for you is going to work for everybody. Yeah. So I make, I make a strong distinction between being clever and being intelligent. Yeah. And we have a lot of clever donkeys around, but they're not very smart. There's so much of what you say that resonates with me, Guy. I love, love it. Um, and I think, you know, this podcast is one way to also educate parents, because I think unlike, uh, you know, until the, the, the lockdown, I was, you know, a product of the system in the system, trying to change the system from within. So, you know, observing what makes students flourish and trying to embed well-being in the curriculum. And then COVID happens and I started working from home and I watched what my eldest and my youngest were doing for homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, what's going on here <laughs> and so I started asking all those questions interviewing loads of people for the podcast and I really believe that the more parents like myself who may be educators or not but you know are educated and understand how you know listen to conversations like the conversation we're having mm -hmm. and understand that there is a different way the more young people are also involved in the conversations Absolutely. the more we can bring the change or like yes. push for change yes absolutely absolutely and so it's like you know if we can spread the word that this isn't a revolution it's an evolution but it's one that is quite urgent and quite necessary to prepare young people to cope with the stresses and benefit from the opportunities out there in the big wide 21st century world and if at the same time we can remove some of the barriers to scaling up these innovations mm -hmm. of which this direct instruction knowledge rich belief system is is one of those barriers then then i then maybe with the innovation can spread faster mm -hmm. and and more kids will be properly prepared for their life. So I see, I see my book, um, The Future of Teaching and the Mist of Blowing Up, as a bit like, you know, there's a sort of log jam in the, in the innovation. And I want to lob a big stick of dynamite into the middle of that log jam, and break it up so that the natural, trustworthy intuitions of millions of teachers who are keen, really keen to explore what is the most powerful pedagogy to help young people get ready for life so that they will feel liberated and enthused and confident that what they're doing the kind of complex kind of teaching which they're tinkering their way towards which is what is needed they will they will know they will understand that that is absolutely legitimate and that cognitive science is on their side mm. not on the side of the people who want all the desks in rows and the teacher at the front with a stick of chalk yes and the sage on the stage filling them mm -hmm. up with their amazing knowledge yeah um, yeah well i don't mind i don't i quite enjoy being the sage on the stage sometimes but i don't think it i don't think it's a model for the whole of the whole of school the whole of education no no and, and I, yes and i don't think young people are empty vessels that need to be filled either <laughs> <laughs> so but you 
you know, one, one, I'll ask you one last question and then I'm conscious of your time, so I'll let you go. But, um, you know, how do we empower those teachers? Because the current system is putting so much accountability on them and requiring, requiring them um, to actually comply to this, mm. you know, Descartes yeah. of approach, even if they don't agree. So you said with your last book that there's little things you can tweak that Ofsted would be happy with. Sure. Is that what you would advise, or what else can we can we do? You get that silent evolution in the classroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's lots of it. We we don't lack for good ideas about how to move teaching forward. You know, what what the teaching of the future broadly ought, ought to look like it's just it's getting people to do it it's mm. it's getting teachers and most importantly school principals head teachers are the people who need to have the courage and the conviction they need to believe they need to be helped to believe that if they develop these kinds of teaching in their schools they need to trust that the results will go up yeah. or at least that they won't be messed about. They won't be, yeah. they won't go down. And, and they have to believe that this, this, this is what I call results plus, you know, that the results will look after themselves and will actually get better because kids are thinking more, more, more critically, more creatively. They're learning more deeply. So they write better exam answers, so they get better grades. And at the same time, we're also building their resilience and their curiosity and their imagination, and their collaboration and their empathy and these other kinds of things. It's like nobody really disagrees with the fact that school needs improvement. Mm. There's just a few people around who think that the way to improve schools is to turn the clock back to 1950. Yeah, and get the right. cane back out. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're, 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 they're the clever people. Yeah. And, then, and then, there's the, then there's the really smart people who realise that actually we need to invent something a little bit new. Mm. And we yeah. need to shift, and we can do it in real schools. You know, you don't have to go to some glamorous, you know, alternative school you know it's not only for you know rich kids who can afford to mm. do this out of the other it's like you know what we've found all over the place all over the, the world is that you can go in into a little you know village school in vietnam you can go to a 1200 st student primary school in the east end of london you can go into a fee-paying independent prep school in the home counties and you can do it everywhere mm. yeah because it's that human like you were saying the mind you know that that works it works for, for young people yeah. and and yeah, you know, absolutely. The, the who wouldn't brain... rather be adventurous than timid yeah well yes absolutely right. absolutely and, and you know those traits you you the traits of the mind that you talk about, I call that cultural agility. So what, oh, okay. I've, what I've noticed in my in the latest bits of my research is that flourishing students are culturally agile. So they can they can go around um, 
different cultures and adapt effectively and and I use Paula Caliguri's work on cultural agility and she talks about um, curiosity, resilience. Wow, um, really? Oh. Yeah. So you, oh, may, you may want to to um, check out in, in my in because when I did the flourishing model, the interviewing students who were flourishing, I figured out that they flourishing students focus on their mental health, their physical health, their social health, emotional health and what I call spiritual health, so having a meaning and a sense of purpose mm-hmm. or being in something bigger. But also they came up with a language that was, so their language was like, it's hard, but I'm trying, I'm doing my best. Whereas a languishing students will say, it's too difficult, do it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then they right. had the, the, the flourishing students were displaying what I labeled in the first book, uh, resilience, flexibility, openness, and curiosity. Yeah. But then when I then connected the dots with my with my background on cultural agility and intercultural competence, because obviously I teach French and you know it's mm-hmm. about living mm-hmm. in different countries. And I linked it to Paula Caliguri's work. So I bought her recent book. You may want to build this, your this cultural book. agility. Ah, oh, interesting. No, I, I I haven't come across her, but I will I'll look her up. Yeah, Caliguri, yeah Caliguri. and she she basically talked you can teach as skills so cultural agility are skills you can teach and that she separates them between self-management competencies so tolerance of ambiguity curiosity mm-hmm. resilience yeah. and then relationship management competencies humility relationship building and perspective taking and mm-hmm. and that you then and then you go through different um you know task management competencies so going from uh, adaptation to minimization to total integration and you can integrate in the in the in the, the culture so that relates quite well to what you were it, saying it certainly does it's it sounds great and and her it, 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 i i will i'll follow this up so yeah. thank you, thank you for that. I've learned plenty this afternoon, but that was a that was a little bonus. Thank you very much. Well, no, thank you. And so to to wrap up, Guy. First of all, thank you so much for your time. I've, I've loved talking to you. What a amazing conversation! So thank you. Um, when I wrap up with my guests, I always ask them. You know, if there was one or two things you would want the listeners to take away from this conversation, what would it be? Uh, think about, think broadly about all the different ways in which your child might learn to be happy and fulfilled in their life. Don't box them in to your assumptions. The world is changing fast. Artificial intelligence, globalization, who knows what niche they will find for themselves. So allow them to explore. Don't box them into one enthusiasm because they might follow it for a while and then drop it and go for something else. And keep your mind on the the shaping of character. Character is not determined by our genes. Character is determined by the company we keep. Mm. So 
you know, be the things that you want your kids to be. Be adventurous if you want them to be adventurous. Be patient if you want them to be patient. Be empathic if you want them to learn how to be tolerant and to adopt multiple perspectives and, and so on. Be the, be, be the character you want them to be. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much, Guy. My goodness, I I could I could really talk to you for hours and hours. You, <laughs> you're so inspiring. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been it's been a real pleasure, Fabienne. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah. No. Thank you. And for all the listeners, go and read Guy's new book, the latest book, "The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back." Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy the rest of the day. You too. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn, or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much, and I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.